You're listening to the podcast Bible Companion series by author P.H. Thompson. This is a chronological Bible study going chapter by chapter, discovering Christ in all of Scripture. This is Job chapter 42. Verses 1 through 6, Job repents. Job has been the object of a cosmic contest to determine whether his faith was genuine or just based on self-interest. Satan had challenged God to take away the hedge of protection around him and remove his blessings and supports and then his health to see if there was anything left. God agreed and Job's sufferings began immediately. Wave after wave of calamities fell on him in one day. Job has suffered great losses, his possessions, his livelihood, his servants, and his ten children. Then he lost the emotional support of his wife and then his physical health. Finally, he suffered the loss of his reputation as well. His friends came from far away for the purpose of comforting him, but their merit-based worldview had no room for innocent suffering. So they concluded that they must have been wrong about what they previously thought of him. They accused him of hypocrisy and harboring hidden sin. They assaulted him with slanderous accusations and urged him to repent so God would restore him. After his three friends addressed him several times each and he refuted them and defended his innocence, a fourth person addressed him. His message was much the same except to add that perhaps there was a purpose to Job's sufferings. Then God appeared to Job in a whirlwind and interrogated Job with 70 rhetorical questions. He had been accused of injustice by Job. He countered with questions meant to show Job that he was a creature of the dust, unworthy to challenge the God of the universe who created and sustained his world. Finally, Job replies to the Lord, he has been sufficiently humbled. He still doesn't know why he suffered. He is still suffering, and for all he knows, he will continue suffering. But he is done arguing and fighting against God. He is done with justifying himself. He begins by acknowledging God's sovereignty and omnipotence. I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. And Job repeats some of God's questions back to him to acknowledge that he finally gets it. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Job admits he was proud and presumptuous. Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. God said this twice. Job was finally acknowledging God had the judicial authority to demand answers from him. The reason is that even though Job previously thought he knew God, he only knew about him. Now his faith was sight and he'd never be the same. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. How much better is experience than mere head knowledge? But a person can't be in the presence of the holiness of God without recognizing the vast difference between themselves and him. Seeing God always results in an awareness of our sinfulness. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. This is a mark of true repentance. Verses 7-9, through Epilogue Job's friends rebuked and forgiven. 
This remi remainder of this final chapter returns to prose to tell us the rest of the story. Job's repentance was genuine. He had accepted God's rebuke and learned his lesson. His faith was stronger, even though God hadn't even hinted that his circumstances would change, but they did. First, God deals with Job's friends by also addressing them directly through Eliphaz the Temanite, who was probably the eldest and therefore the representative of all three of them. He was the one who had spoken first. God tells him, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. We see this personal rebuke was necessary because these men would not likely have believed it if Job had only told them God spoke to him and rebuked their words. From this we learn several things. God is concerned that we believe and teach true things about him. We will be called to account for our words. They had concluded that prosperity was a sign of God's favor and affliction a sign of his wrath. They were wrong. They had no room for innocent suffering or grace in their worldview. We also learn from this that God will vindicate his people before all. Descriptions of the final judgment show God first commending his servants so that the world sees he approves of them. See the parable of the sheep and goats in Matthew 25. We also see that for the most part, Job spoke the truth about God. Also, he is referred to by God four times as my servant Job, and that's a great thing to be known as. Moses is called my servant by God. Others that receive that designation are Caleb, David, Eliakim, the Israelites, and the prophets. Even pagan kings like Cyrus and Nebuchadnezzar are servants of God in the sense that they are used by him to accomplish his purposes. But the ultimate servant of the Lord is the Messiah, Jesus. They are instructed, So now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. From this we learn that God is gracious in warning them and us and providing a way to make it right. And this shows that the concept of blood sacrifice was established by God even before it was made official with the giving of the Mosaic Law. The number of bulls and rams sacrificed is the same as what Balaam sacrificed in Numbers 23.1, so it may have been well known even among the pagan nations. The irony is that the man that they accused of being wicked is the one who is now their mediator and intercessor. We see that Job was seen as a mediator priest, as he had been for his children, Job 1.5. Before the Levitical priesthood, the head of the family served this function. Sacrifices remind us that a substitute must take our place and that death is the penalty for sin. Even then, there were certain animals specified for sacrifice. My servant Job will pray for you, and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. Again, Job would act as a mediator between the offenders and the offended party, and God promised that if they did this, Job's prayer would be accepted by him and they would be forgiven. They would not be punished for their folly or foolishness, which God describes as them not having spoken the truth about him, as Job has, 
and this again vindicated Job directly to his accusers. They wisely did as God told them to do. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite did what the Lord told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. When we are convicted of our sin by our consciences, or by preaching or reading the Word of God, we need to repent right away and seek to have our relationship with God restored. It is not a time for obstinacy. Peace with God must be on His terms. Likewise, we are estranged from God because of our sin, but He takes the initiative to restore us. We see how gracious Job is towards his friends. He had reason to remain angry at them and hold a grudge, but He forgives them because He realizes He is no better than they are, and yet He has been forgiven. Also see the great privilege it is to pray for each other. Satan had tried to prove Job was a hypocrite. His friends accused him of being wicked. But if God says, well done, good and faithful servant, that is the only verdict that matters. Verses 10 through 16, Job's restoration and blessing. But what about Job? Matthew Henry says it beautifully. It is the glory of God to send help to the helpless and hope to the hopeless. So if we continue uh, if we think back to Satan's original challenge, we see he has lost. Job's faith was genuine and not dependent on external circumstances, blessings, or safety and health. God had tested Job, and now, as Job had said, he had come forth as gold. Now God comforts and honors him. After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. So he was rich before, he was twice as rich now. We also see very clearly that the source of his riches is the Lord. We can also assume he was healed rather quickly. Then we are told all his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came and ate with him in his house. The family members who had kept their dis distance during his ordeal, chapter 19, now came and supported him and fellowshiped with him. They comforted and consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought on him, and each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. Finally, Job gets the true comfort and consolation he should have received in the midst of his suffering. And they also brought him gifts, further enriching him with silver and gold. And this also shows us that his friends and relatives now realized it was God who brought this trouble into Job's life, but now they understood it wasn't to punish him, but to humble him and teach him to trust God. At the beginning of his trials, Satan instigated it and God allowed it. Now, God blesses and Satan cannot oppose it. We must always remember that Satan is bound by God's chains. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, a thousand yoke of oxen, and a thousand donkeys. If you compare these numbers to Job 1.3, you'll see it is exactly doubled. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. Both he and his wife again had a large family with the same configuration as before. Why wasn't this number doubled? In a sense they were, because he already had ten children waiting for him in heaven. Then we are told that his three daughters were special. 
First, their names. Jemima means handsome as the daylight. Kezia means a sweet-smelling fragrance. And Karen Hapuk means the colorful ray. We are told nowhere in all the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters. But they were so well loved by their father that he granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. This was very rare, if not unheard of completely, in a patriarchal society. Later on, in the Mosaic Law, daughters could receive an inheritance if there were no brothers. These women had brothers living, so it reflects Job's wealth, generosity, and love to include them. Even though at one point Job thought death was imminent, God had other plans. We are told, after this, Job lived a hundred and forty years, he saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. If we are to assume he was around 40 or 50 at the beginning of the narrative, that would make him close to 200 when he died, which is not unheard of for the generations soon after the flood. When his 10 children died in chapter 1, I'm sure Job never imagined he'd have other children, let alone grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and even great-great-grandchildren. But such is God's blessing. He is able to repay in this life and the next. When we are on a mountain spiritually, we think we'll never have to come down. Likewise, when we are in a spiritual valley, we think we'll never get out. But that's as foolish as expecting that tomorrow's weather must be the same as it is today. And so Job died an old man and full of years. This is a fitting epitaph to a man who was emptied of all when he was young. Now he was old and full. Scarlet Threads So what scarlet threads or hints of Jesus Christ or an application to the Gospel do we find in this chapter? When Job saw God, he recognized his own sinfulness. Peter did the same when he realized Jesus was the Son of God. Job acted as a mediator for his friends both by offering sacrifices on their behalf and praying for them, and their acceptance depended on God's chosen mediator. Then God forgave and restored them. So both Job and the sacrifices pointed forward to Jesus, who was accused of wickedness, but was the perfect substitute and sacrifice for our sins, and is the perfect mediator between us and God, because he continues to pray for us. And our acceptance is based on God's choice of a mediator. Job willingly played, prayed for his friends instead of holding a grudge. It is a great privilege to pray for each other. God wants us to do that. We should also not hold grudges. The irony was that this one who they thought was so wicked was really God's beloved and was the key to their favor with God. Jesus, the person the world condemned to death as a wicked criminal, was really God's beloved Son and is the only way to favor with God. God blessed the end of Job's life even more than his beginning. No matter how much we may suffer in this life, it is temporary and cannot be compared with our future glory. You've been listening to the podcast Bible Companion series by author P.H. Thompson. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and comment. Continue listening for lessons from the book of Job. May God bless the study of his word.